Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to be talking about Cholam Balt's idea of myth and mythologies, and actually going to be talking about signifiers and signified, so really a, a lot of things here in order to explain principally myths. Now before jumping into that, hi, I'm David. If you're new here, uh, I explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you are new, like, share, subscribe. You'll see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week. You can go check out some 200 and some that I already have up now if you're interested in that at all. If you want to help me out, you can do that by doing all those things I just mentioned. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find the audio only in podcast form if you're into that. If you found the audio only in podcast form, you can find the video for this on YouTube if you're into that at all. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. There are links and all the clickable things underneath this video if you're into that. And uh, yeah, let's jump into this. So I'm developing this idea principally from his text called Mythology. Now he does mention this in other texts as well. He does get into the idea about myth and the importance of myth in his other texts like writing de degree zero, but I'm gonna focus on mythology because that's where he really gets into the weeds of this term and how myths operate within a specific socio-cultural setting and the, really the function that they serve. So he begins by saying that myth is a type of speech, which is to say that there is no specific kind of myth. There are certain ideas, maybe certain real things in the world that can belong to myths, but to understand myths requires that we first acknowledge it as a form, which is a form of speech, which can extend, I should qualify, can extend to other media as well. So it's not reserved for just verbal speaking. It can happen in writing, it can happen in through pictures, it can happen through film, it can happen through uh, you know newspaper print, whatever, it can really include anything. Now what makes myth a myth? And there are gonna be a few different uh, defining qualities as we go through here, but perhaps the biggest one is that a myth is meant to convey a message. And so in that way, it is a little bit didactical. That is, it's teaching us something. When we hear a myth, that myth is relaying to us a message. And we can think of so many different examples about that, like the myth of uh, Icarus and the idea that you shouldn't uh, fly too close to the sun. And we use that to teach us about humility, maybe to teach us about reservation, to teach us about patience, not to go too far ahead with anything. Now that's just one example, you know, there are so many more. Myths serve the purpose of transmitting messages to people, and they are cultural. We agree upon them culturally, and we come to adopt them and to then further transmit them culturally. And so they serve a useful purpose, which is why they've been around for so long. And there are so many different examples of age-old myths that we tell our children and tell uh, people we encounter in order to teach people. Now, because myth, or the myth that Balth is talking about here, is not reducible to a specific story, but is instead a kind of a way of speaking, a way of telling stories, He's here interested in studying them abstractly, 
which is to say he's not going to focus on specific myths per se, even though he, he will to give examples. He's more concerned with studying them as being part of a language, as a part of a semiotic system. And so for that reason, he uses what he calls borrowing from Saussure, he uses semiology, which is really the study of language. Really specifically, it's about studying the relationship between a signifier and a signified. Now to put it even more simply, it's about studying how a word can stand in for a thing in the world and how these two things are often, in fact always, incongruent. The words that we use to describe things in the world are arbitrary. There is no natural connection between a tree that we might see in the world and the word tree in English, T-R-E-E, -E, that we use to represent that thing. Yet, we are able to form entire communities and civilizations using these codes in the form of language that we've just agreed upon culturally. Now, semiology goes one step further to say that our relationship to language is not just about utility. It's not just about having an easy way to facilitate communication. It's not just about having words that stand in for things in the world, because we are confronted as well with some very abstract things that don't so easily lend themselves to language. And the word that we use to understand these more abstract things and these more abstract relationships are signs. So we have a signifier, we have a signified, the signifier representing the signified, and then we have a sign that bridges the two, which is might seem kind of confusing, but let me give the example that Balth gives, because I think it's I think it's good. Normally I would give my own if it was unclear, but uh, I, I think that th this one is good. So you, he uses the example of a bouquet of roses. If you have a bouquet of roses and you want to give it to your partner as a sign of your passion, what you are effectively doing is using a signifier, the roses, to stand in for your passion, the signified, which you're going to give to your partner. Now on their own, what we have here is on the one hand the signified, your passion, and on the other hand the signifier, your roses. But that would only make sense to you if we only understood these in terms of the relationship between the signifier, roses, and the signified passion. But because culturally we have an entire economy of meaning that bestows uh, or inscribes these artifacts with these kind of meaning, then we are able to then transmit that deeper meaning to somebody else. So the roses are just then almost naturally imbued with this idea of passion. And in that setting where you, maybe it's Valentine's Day, whatever, you're giving your partner roses that are then meant to convey that passion. And so in that moment where there is an almost inextricable association, uh, a kind of indetachable association or undetachable between the roses and passion or your love, it means then that it has become a sign. So the equation would go as follows. Signifier plus signified equals a sign. But it doesn't just happen neutrally or automatically. You know, it has to be bestowed with this meaning and has to be repeated over and over and over again in order for the signifier and the signified 
to become a sign. Because if, for example, I thought that uh, a pile of gravel could stand in for my passion and I gave it to somebody, to me, that pile of gravel was exactly what I wanted it to be. It was a signifier of my passion for somebody. But it's not, it hasn't attained the status of a sign because it hasn't been culturally acknowledged to inextricably be associated with passion. It was only specific to me. But with everything we've discussed up till this point, we haven't yet arrived at myth. Myth comes into the picture when this sign that we've arrived at now becomes the signifier to another signified that is on a deeper level of signification. So what I just described in the case of the roses is an example of what he calls first order semiology or first order semiotics. And myth enters the picture when the sign of the first order system, in this case that I discussed, the bridging of roses with passion, now becomes a signifier for or to another signified that can then mean something else. It can become a new sign, which at this level, it's not totally important, but at this level is actually called signification. Now the example that Balth gives for this is, is different. And he gives the example of a French magazine that has the picture of a small black child, uh, and he's you know writing this in the 50s, I believe, a small black child in military uniform saluting the French flag. So if we applied what I just did, this first order semiotic analysis, we could say that this is an example of patriotism. Uh, and so what we have here is the depiction of a black child in military garb standing in for acting as a signifier of French patriotism. And then the two things become interlinked and they are a sign. Now, second order semiotics that exists at the level of myth will then take this sign, the link between this child and patriotism, and say that it is actually meant to stand in for something else, a new signified. And that new signified in this context could be any number of things, but Balt proposes that it might be in this context an erasure of France's imperial efforts in Algeria. So now this black child is doing more than just represent French patriotism. This child is standing in as, a, uh, as an erasure or as a, as a way to absolve France of its uh, imperial guilt in order to say or to represent, look, this black child loves France, so therefore France doesn't have a problem uh, with its imperial efforts. There's nothing wrong imperially with France. And so what we have here is a deeper meaning that is being conveyed through this image that Balth is describing. Not just French patriotism, but actually an effort to absolve France of its violent past and at the time ongoing uh, harms it is inflicting on African nations, including Algeria. And there's no reason this can't go further. I mean, I don't necessarily have the capacity to go further, but if any of you listening have any ideas, you know, you could definitely comment. How could it go further? Now that we've established a new sign associating this child with this idea about uh, French benevolent foreign policy, 
How can we go further taking that as a signifier in a new chain of signification? Now what myths do is they operate then in accordance with certain dominant streams of thought and of power. What narratives are going to be uh, proclaimed through myth? Why are some ideas going to be represented and others maybe not so much? For whom do these myths benefit? Because a myth serves the instrumental purpose of making these ideas seem natural, to naturalize in this case France's imperial efforts, to say that look, they are good. We have the example of a black child here enjoying everything that France has done, being very proud of France. Excuse my cat. Uh, being very proud of France. And so people read that and they come to almost subconsciously associate France with this benevolence. And this does serve certain interests. Specifically in this case, it serves a certain bourgeois interest. Perhaps it serves uh, the interests of various politicians of just upper ranking officials who uh, established to some way or other, in some way or other, uh, what people should be thinking about France's foreign policy. So myths operate to naturalize history, to make things appear as though there is no alternative, that there, you know, France's uh, military and imperial efforts just had to happen and they had great effects. And so what happens as well is we come to associate certain signs with certain things, certain signifiers with certain signifieds. And what that does is it kind of forecloses the possibilities afforded by language, where we come to make intrinsic associations between certain ideas, certain signifieds, and certain signifiers in order to foreclose the possibility of having different interpretations. And through repetition, they become to be naturalized to such an extent that it it gets very difficult to actually challenge them, to actually call attention to them. So insofar as it does that, it forecloses an engagement, possible engagement with them, it forecloses the possibility of dialogue, it forecloses politics to happen around it. And so it is the duty of mythology, the study of myths, to reveal the extent to which these myths are artificial. Now Bath employ, employs, implores that we don't just approach myths by saying that they are false and we need truth to oppose them. He says that will only lead us astray because myths are clever. They're just going to reincorporate counter narratives within its narrative in order to proffer itself up. And so the task should then be not to oppose myth with some kind of transcendent truth. It should instead be to demonstrate myth by being more mythic, to uh, insert more myth into myth to potentially direct it into a more benevolent direction, to enter that next order of semiotics, to turn that sign into just another signifier for a new chain of signification that can open up more possibility, that can uh, direct us in such a way as to challenge a hegemonic status quo that propels certain narratives in certain directions for the benefit of a few. And yeah, that's essentially what Balth is getting at here, there, there's more to it. He does lay out, uh, kind of taxonomize the different kinds of myth to some extent and like different ways to understand them. And to get all that, you really gotta go and read it, which I definitely recommend. But yeah, I hope I gave you a fair introduction here. If there's anything I excluded that I shouldn't have, I'd love to hear about it. Anything that I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, leave five stars if you can on the podcast platform. 
and I'll catch you next time. Take care.